Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three-part spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour, Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's redacted distracted, negatively impacted, truth-extracted, establishment-adapted, dysfunctional little world. Now, as always, we try to do this with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given day. We're not always successful, I'll admit to that, but we are honour bound to give it a shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love shots, yes we do. Our rally cry is, awaken, O my people. Do not follow the path of the sheeple, and do not give our God cause to weeple. If you're joining us for the first time, I extend a very warm welcome to you. Be advised, we don't do politically correct on this show. We don't do politically correct because we do not wish to erode our intellect. We have very strong views on that sort of thing. We martini heads, we're straight-talking, straightforward folks. We may be direct, but we come from a core of respect. You won't find any fakery here to up our numbers. What you see is what you get. We value common decency. We value common courtesy, common sense, and we value America's national sovereignty and the sovereignty of all peoples. On this show, when we use labels, we do so for identification purposes. We are strictly non-partisan because we believe all parties are in the can. Our world has lost its moral compass. And without a moral compass, the political arena is nothing more than a never-ending power play, benefiting a small group of sociopaths gorging themselves on the fat of the land while the rest of humanity is begging for crumbs under their fully laden tables. That is what's going on, in case you haven't paid attention. And honestly, by now, with so many repetitions of the same scenario throughout the ages, humanity, we should know better. That's why we started this show. That's what it's all about. Looking at the bigger picture, stepping outside the carefully crafted establishment narrative. And I will say, that does take guts, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. So if you're one of the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions, who would rather sleep comfortably in the manufactured illusion, if you're content to do as you're told, put on your musk, eat what you are given, 
eat this food. Behave as ordered and believe everything the daily spin churns out. This show is not for you. So move along now, nothing to see here. If, on the other hand, you have capacity for objective thought and wish to better understand the marvels of cosmic co-creation, to enjoy your incarnation, well, you might hear something of value in the next hour. Who knows? I don't know. Peeps, life is an adventure. Adventure means getting out there, having a bash at it. Have a bash. Don't sit there in fear until you develop diaper rash. Get up off your asses. Do something. So let's get on with it. Let's get on with the show. Let's start with quack questions, answers and comments, because that's why we started this show to hear what you, the people want to talk about. So if you would like to share the contents of your ever expanding minds on this excruciatingly brilliant show, Send your emails to me, Arnie at ArnieAvadician.com. Or you can send a postcard, as many people do. Snail mail goes to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, America the Beautiful. And please let me know if and how you would like to be identified, because if you do not, I will refer to you as omit personal details. All right, let me have a little sip of my drinky poo. Mm. I'm often asked, do you actually have a martini when you do the show? Well, it's not always a martini, but it's definitely a cocktail. So let's shake up the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity and see what pops up. All right, so our first question comes from Arjun, uh, A-R-J-U-N, who's from Dearborn, Michigan, who asks, Dear Arnie, if a person swears allegiance to one particular faith and has remained committed to it for the duration of their life, will they be allowed to worship in the same way when they go to heaven? Hmm. Well, Arjun, I do believe that as long as you don't seek to harm anyone, you are free to worship as you wish in heaven. Now, here's the thing. And we figure this out after we've been up there for a while. Religion, any religion, well, it's just a man-made construct, isn't it? No one faith can hold within it the glory that is divine energy. When you come into your originating soul awareness up in heaven, in other words, when you've been up there a while and you've incorporated all your incarnations into your being, you're no longer working through the limitations of one personality with all its social and cultural conditioning, well, you have no option then but to transcend the one faith belief system. You will realize at that point that all paths, all paths of light lead to God. And in that expanded consciousness, you may choose to change the way you worship or not. I have to say, you know, God adores its creations and has no investment in which method we use to show our adoration of God. So I say don't sweat it, Arjun. I happen to believe that every religion is a start, but it's they're not complete, are they? And they're quite immature. And we think differently when we're up there because we don't have to operate 
through the coding of our physical bodies. Don't sweat it. It's going to be fine. Whatever religion you are, whatever religion your personality is, when you die and go to heaven, you will be in that personality until you come into your orig originating soul. And when that happens, it's just not going to matter. So thanks for the question, Arjun, in Dearborn, Michigan. All right, let's pick another one from the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. And this one is from Edgar. Oh, Edgar, there's a name you don't hear these days. Edgar asks, dear suburban shaman, how did we get to this point? Why is there so much discord in our world? Could you have generalized that question anymore, Edgar? <laughs> well, I would say in short, it's because we have been carefully led into the mindset of fear. Perpetual threat perception. And this wears us down. When we're in fear, we cannot think clearly. We give up and we allow the people who planted the seeds of fear into us to come up with a solution to the problem they created in the first place. Our world today is quite literally designed to feed our egos with fear. And that, my darlings, is why we are so expletively messed up. All discord is fear-based. All anxiety, all of it, is fear-based. All brutality is fear-based. Fear and its secondary subordinate emotions, all of it. Fear makes us feeble-minded, unable to think for ourselves. That's why we believe the crap politicians spew day in, day out, while they steal from us and line their own pockets. Why would we fall for that? In our egos, they've grown particularly good at encouraging us to look outside ourselves for the course, for the cause of our discomfort. And we're not going to find it there, are we? The answer to our problems always comes from within. We must be strong. We must train ourselves to become aware of our fear-based thoughts. And once we make that type of awareness a habit, we can sit with our breath and ask, why does this thought take me to a place of fear? Is there truly something to fear? Or are my thoughts so jumbled that I cannot discern between what requires attention and what is my mind's invention? Fear freezes us. Look around you. People driving in sports cars, wearing a mask. What the, with the top down, what? How, when we're frozen, we can't move. If we can't move, someone else will call the shots for us. And that's why we're in such a sorry state today. If you want a permanent solution to this, it's very simple. Since fear is the cause of all discord, we must, he we must heal, heal the fear-based thoughts. Now, I could go on for a couple of hours on this, but I will spare you and I will simply say this. Let the spirit inhabit the human. We can allow ourselves to be governed by the malevolent agendas of others, or we can identify and dissolve our fear-based thoughts and move on to create a new golden age. What we create in our minds is up to us. The mind is a precious thing, my darlings, and we should take great care to make sure that we are the ones taking up the space within it, 
Right now, millions of you are allowing somebody else to take over your minds. And I would say, well, that's your business. But you know what? I have to live on this planet, too. And it's my job to point that out to you because you're creating a ridiculously awful scenario that the rest of us don't want to live in. When we experience fear and we want to pray for guidance and for help, whatever the situation is that concerns us, instead of asking God to resolve the situation, because we always tell God what to do, don't we? God, I have this problem. Can you fix it by so-and-so? Duh. Instead of asking God to resolve the situation, let us ask God to help us to heal by dissolving the fear-based thoughts. Asking to resolve a situation involves other people, and they all have their own paths, their soul contracts, their pre-birth agreements. We just don't have the right to interfere with that. But we have every right to ask for the permanent healing of our minds. And since individualized perception is the key, we should pray for help in healing and dissolving our fear-based thinking. And if you don't pray, that's fine. I would say then affirm, affirm that you are dissolving your fear-based thinking, your fear-based thoughts. This puts us back into control, back in the driver's seat. Because, you see, we seem to forget this one especially important truth. What we do internally is of mega importance because we, we are the creators of our external world. Thanks, Edgar. Be well, and thanks for writing in. Let's take another question, and this is from Jake, who says, Ani, do you believe the Shroud of Turin is authentic? Is it the burial shroud of Jesus after the crucifixion? Oh, I do love answering questions that are going to immediately alienate thousands of people from me. Jake, while I agree that Jesus is real and had an incarnation on Earth, many, in fact, after different names, I don't agree that he was crucified, so I have to say no. Since, in my humble opinion, he was not crucified, then the Shroud of Turin cannot be his post-crucifixion burial shroud. To me, the whole notion of blood sacrifice is Luciferian in its roots. No god would require such a sacrifice. And why anybody would worship a god who would permit, let alone ask for such a thing, well, that's beyond me. So, cheers, Jake. Be well. All right, let's take another question, and uh, this is from, I think it's Bryson, Bryson in Mississippi, who says, Dear Arnie, oh, golly, um, I had to pick this one, didn't I? <laughs> uh, okay, let's start again. Dear Arnie, a colleague recently made me aware of the Global Anti-Semitic Act of 2004. I must admit it concerns me. I recently read the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, and my mind was blown apart. Everything they talked about is happening today. Is it true the Jews are trying to take over the world? I am not mocking you, Bryson. I am not mocking you. It just made me giggle a little bit. Because um, I happen to have quite a few Jewish friends um, in, in the world of academia. Well, Bryson, going to have to go with a no on that one. Uh, Jews, per se, are not trying to take over the world. I'm fairly sure most of them just want a quiet life, and world domination doesn't give one much free time. Bryson, it's good to have our minds blown apart from time to time, but we mustn't forget to put them back together again. 
So here's my thing on this. People get Zionism and Judaism confused. They are not one and the same. And please resist at this point, all listeners, please resist the temptation to be emotionally triggered by my responses to the question. Because just the mention of the words Jewish or Zionist sends people into a tailspin. And once you're triggered, you stop listening and your minds hear what they want to hear and not what I'm saying. And that is the beginning of mental illness, quite frankly. That's what I mean by feeble mindedness. The inability to entertain, to discuss a concept contrary to yours. And we call that being frozen in fear and frozen people are not functional. So the global anti-Semitic act of 2004, I'm, I think I'm just going to have to sum it up. Um, it's been a long time. I don't think I read it since 2004, but when it was passed, I was surprised most Americans were not aware that it had passed. And that concerned me as much as the fact that it was written and passed. <clears throat> My opinion on this, on it, you can't legislate hate. You can't tell people not to hate. I mean, a crime is a crime. It shouldn't be a hate crime. That, that just doesn't make sense to me. You can't legislate anti-Semitism. You can't legislate any anti-race or tribe. The whole concept is ridiculous. The whole concept of hate crime is ridiculous. If someone wanted to pass a bill saying it was illegal to be anti-Armenian, I would laugh myself stupid. A crime is a crime. Why you commit the crime is a different matter, but the crime is the crime. I'm going to set it up for you. I'm going to sum it up for you, and you decide for yourselves what this means. So this is a summary of what the writers of the bill consider to be anti-Semitism. And by the way, I'm sure we all know that Jews are not the only Semites. I'm going to say that word one more time. Jews. Is anyone triggered? Are you triggered by the word Armenian? Are you triggered by the word French person? Are you triggered by the word Muslim? Get over it. All right. Here's my sum up of that 2004 act, any assertion that the Jewish community controls government, the media, and international business and finance. Any strong anti-Israel sentiment. Well, does one assume then that weak anti-Israel sentiment is okay? Virulent criticism of Israel's leaders, past or present. Ah, so weak criticism is okay. Criticism of Jewish religion or its religious leaders or literature, including the Talmud and Kabbalah. Criticism of the U.S. government and Congress for being under undue influence by the Jewish Zionist community. Seriously? They are telling us we can't think? Not saying any of these things are true, by the way, but this is thought police. Criticism of the Jewish community for promoting globalism, sometimes referred to as New World Order. Ah! Blaming Jewish leaders and their followers for inciting the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, you know, we, all, we know my, my thoughts on that. Questioning the six million Holocaust figure. Hmm, my Jewish academic friends question that. They think it was far lower. Asserting that there is a Zionist conspiracy. Claiming that Jews and their leaders created the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, making derogatory statements about Jewish persons. Okay, why is this applied only to the Jewish community? Shouldn't there be an anti-every race bill? Well, clearly that's not what I want, but... The whole concept of telling someone it's against the law to share what is on their mind is ridiculous to the point of being laughable, except, well, that's the whole point, isn't it? The establishment don't want us to think for ourselves. So the first step is to tell us we cannot speak what's on our minds because there will be penalties. And if people cannot express themselves and they don't fight back, they will eventually stop thinking 
And that's exactly what the establishment wants. And it is happening all around us today. Look, my darling, I could go down a rabbit hole with this one. And I do quite often. And we will, but not today and not on the show because we don't have enough time. As for the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, well, I was introduced to this document many moons ago as a young woman by a Russian, a then Soviet academic, who poked me in the chest and said, know what you are up against. The Antichrist is not one man. This is what it is. And that all sounds very John le Carré, but I assure you it wasn't such a romantic interaction. It was a simple exchange of ideas. So this pamphlet, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, it's in print and it's widely available. And in brief, it is laid out as the minutes from the Cabal Illuminati establishment meetings. Now, if we think about it, I doubt that the people intent on world domination got together and wrote recorded, I mean, recorded minutes of their nefarious intentions and accomplishments to publish for all the world to read. Oh, yes. Uh, in this meeting, we decided to buy politicians. Here's a list of the ones we just purchased. Oh, yes. And in this meeting, here's a list of people we tricked into performing weird sexual acts and we're now blackmailing them. And here's a list of all the wars we created so we could set up private corporations in the countries. And here's a list of what we would do when people started to wake up. And here's a list of how we're going to destroy religion. You get my meaning, right? It's laughable. But the thing is, thing is, once you read that document, you will have to admit everything written in it rings true. Now, that said, Please do not get Zionists confused with any Jewish community, including Israel. So there's a definition of Zionism that can be defined as a movement for the reestablishment and the development and protection of a Jewish nation. And we have that. It's Israel. And that was established as a political organization in 1897. I think that was Theodore Herzl. And later was led by Chaim Wiseman. And it's the ideology that Jewish people should return to their national homeland. That there are Zionists, there's a definition of Zionists who want to secure a place for Jews to live, hopefully in peace, and restore their culture and civilization. So the Jewish community at large just wants to live in peace. It has no interest in taking over the world and making Israel a central one world government. They would find that laughable, but there is another definition for Zionists. And this is where people get hosed up. Do not confuse Zionism with Judaism. People actually go out of their way, the nefarious people, to have you confuse Judaism and Zionism. Israel is well poised to destabilize the Middle East, to destabilize the world. There is within the Zionist movement an element that is cabal. But the Zionist movement itself is not cabal. All right. So people are so quickly triggered by the subject. And, and that is quite frankly immature. Study the history. See the bigger picture. Read between the lines. Follow the agenda. Follow the money. Form your own conclusions. And you might just think about being aware of all the bills that your governments pass. And read some of them and go, what the flippity gibbet is this about? Because 16 years later, we are under attack from New World Order. Not from the Jews in your neighborhood, but from New World Order. So, 
Bryson, thanks for getting that up. Um, we need more conversations about these sensitive subjects because they should not be sensitive subjects. Sensitive implies we're too fragile and feeble-minded to discuss matters of importance. And guess who wants that? Yes, the ever-present, ever-evil establishment. Okay, phew, wow. Um, I think a little sip of my drinky poo. And I, I, to all the peoples of the world, may we all live in harmony, I drink to you. Mm. Oh gosh, that's lovely. Mm. That one's a keeper. All right, moving on from Zionism. Um, I think we have time for a couple of quickie questions. Now, I don't put those in the big fish bowl of perpetual perplexity. I put them in the smaller bowl, the goldfish bowl of gradual awakening. So let's see what's in there. Oh, who is this from? Uh, from nobody. So, okay, dear Arnie, so I would say this is from Omit Personal Details. What are your views on gay marriage? <laughs> Do you think gay people should be allowed to marry under, under law? Wow. All right. Um, she thinks how to approach this subject, because I think it's no secret that I bat for the other team, you know, the team without bats. So I'll just give you my views on marriage. I don't have a problem with gay marriage. I have a problem with marriage. I have a problem with the words under law. I will rephrase that. I have no problem with marriage. I have a problem with the words marriage under law. The state, in my opinion, should have no say in whether or not people marry. Why should it? It's none of their business. Marriage is a personal bond between two people, and the state should not be involved. I don't think it is in any way, shape, or form progressive to permit marriage between two gay people. That's all a con. Gay people don't require that the state approve their right to marriage. No one should need the state's approval. In my humble opinion, all marriage should be a personal affair and not alter our status in the eyes of the state which sees us only as taxable units and not as people. Registering marriage is just another establishment control mechanism. And yes, we can go down a big rabbit hole with that one. But you know what? We need to explore a great many rabbit holes because people have forgotten the meaning of liberty and sovereignty. And now my true libertarian feelings come out. We have a long way to go before we can get to that place because, again, we have lost our moral compass. Anyway, uh, OPD, omit personal details. Thank you for that question. And one more quickie question, I think. Uh, let's see. I've got five in front of me. Eeny, meeny, eeny, meeny, eeny, meeny, no. Okay, again, this is from omit personal details. Ani, that's me. If you are asked to define in simple terms the problem you seem to have with paedophilia, what would you say? Oh, well, in simple terms, in simple terms, I would start by saying that any sexual union is an intimate and potentially life-altering act. 
and children do not have the emotional maturity to make decisions for themselves on such matters. I could say so much more. And for example, I could go out on a limb and say to you, whoever you are, if you had a nine-year-old child of either gender, would you think it appropriate for, say, a 45-year-old man to put himself inside that child? What a horrific thought. It would damage the child in ways that we have no vocabulary for. But I was asked for simple terms, so I'll leave it there. If you really want to know what I think of it all, you might consider signing up for my November Cosmic Conversation when I will be sharing what I know about the Luciferian agenda, which is a lot. I'm not a Luciferian, but I know a lot on this subject. And fair warning, it's not the most pleasant subject I've discussed, but since it is the agenda that fuels deep state ideology, I feel it is something people who are co-creators will want to know about. You know, if we take a look at what's going on in some of the school curriculums, they're beginning to discuss sexual acts in ways that I think are very inappropriate for the age group they're being presented to. I know for a fact that part of the Luciferian agenda is to blur the lines between all types of sexual union. I mean, eventually they will say it's perfectly fine to bonk an animal, uh, which, by the way, it's not. So I'll just... Oh, sometimes even I run out of words, and God knows I'm the most verbose person I know. Well, thank you for that uh, question. And I think on that, we'll finish questions, answers, and comments. And I want to thank everyone who participated. We are getting some interesting questions. People are, are thinking um, more diverse stuff. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep them coming, and fantastic. All right, now it's time for Tarot A Go Go. A little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. We are using the Robin Wood deck because it's pretty and I like pretty things. Today's card is the Two of Cups. So let's pick it up and see what it's all about. Hmm. I'm letting the vibrations flow through me now in, 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 in the true spirit of tarotology, letting the vibrations of this card flow through me, the Two of Cups. Well, it is an attractive card. They're two well-dressed people with lovely golden goblets in hand, joining hands. It seems to me their eyes are closed, but not quite all the way. Now, these two, they know each other. They trust each other. They think they trust each other. They're beginning to trust each other. But they also know that with any level of what looks like hand binding, be it marriage or a business agreement, one cannot be completely sure one has made the right decision. The area around their hands and cups is illuminated with a rainbow colored circle and it's beaming light in all directions. If we look above them, we see a winged staff. I think that's the caduceus of Hermes, 
and it's topped with a grand male lion's head. Commerce, business, corporation matched with passion, fortitude. Hmm, there's a lot of potency in this symbolism. I mean, a male lion. So what does it say to us, this card? I say it looks like the beginnings of a potentially happy union. A good exchange between two parties. It could be business. It could be friendship. It could be romantic. There's some sort of mutual respect. At least that's where it's starting. You know, a genuine desire for harmony, common ground, people trusting each other and entering into some sort of contract. Now, what happens when I reverse this card? So let me reverse this card. Ooh, well, it feels like the end of a relationship, as though partnerships are breaking up. Perhaps the ideas, the ideologies were just incompatible. That happens. Or perhaps there was an actual violation of a trust. There are many reasons why relationships don't work out. And it could be anything from, sorry, love, this just isn't working, to some really hateful behavior. So, of course, you're going to have to look at the cards around this one to see what level of um, dysfunction we're talking about. But if you pick this card as a one-off, you know, as opposed to a placement in a spread, I will say right side up, take a chance. The chances are good. And in the reverse position, do not take a chance. Walk away. You don't need the agony. So the two of cups, there it is. On the next podcast, we will examine the two of swords. All right, my darlings, now it's time for another segment. We do all our own side effects on this uh, sound effects and side effects on this show. And we get confused because we drink a martini throughout this show. But never mind, it's all fun and games. It's time for the cryptic mystic, where we have our way with someone dead who liked to pray. <laughs> someone wrote in and said that they thought that was disgusting. I didn't mean that kind of have your way. Honestly, people, your minds are in the gutter. So since it's so close to All Hallows' Eve, I thought we might pick someone with a touch of the dark and the creepy about them. So today's holy roller is Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin. Most people know him simply as Rasputin, the spiritual advisor to the Romanov family. So let's dig a little. I mean, not literally, because that would be creepy, and see what comes up. What do we know about this blue-eyed mystic? Well, I think we know he was born in Siberia, January 1869. We know he had some schooling, but not a lot, and he remained illiterate. And I don't think that was because of the schooling. I think perhaps he was dyslexic and no one picked up on it back in the day. Anyway, he seemed to have had some sort of religious awakening at 18 years old and decided he wanted to be a monk. So he goes and he signs up at the Vikaturia Monastery in Siberia. And then he's introduced to a cult called the Christi. And this is a flagellant sect. Um, and, and not to demean it, but these are the people that beat themselves quite a lot. Um, it's a Christian sect. It broke away from the Orthodox Church in 1645 
And it actually lasted through into the 20th century. So these people, they engaged in, let's call them ecstatic rituals, which include rapid dancing and then falling to the floor and engaging in sexual acts, which apparently, if you sufficiently exhaust yourself, will bring you closer to God. Really? Well, I'm, I shall have to try that sometimes and I'll let you know how it goes. Well, what sort of an impact this had on Grigori, we can't tell, but he decided not to become a monk. Uh, instead, 19 years old, he returned to his hometown, got married and fathered four children. Marriage didn't agree with him. He walked out on his family and traveled to Mount Athos in Greece and to Jerusalem, living off donations. He was sort of a self-proclaimed holy man. He said he was a, he had healing powers a self-proclaimed mystic. He told people he could heal the sick and predict the future. And he had that sort of look about him and those piercing eyes. Uh, people believed him. Eventually, Rasputin's walkabout took him to St. Petersburg, and he was welcomed by the inspector of one of the religious academies. And the court circles at that time apparently were entertaining themselves. Well, we're talking about the turn of the 1900s, 1903, 1904, something like that. So it was very fashionable in the nobility circles to delve into mysticism and the occult. And Rasputin, he had that look about him. Apparently he was filthy and unkempt and these very brilliant eyes. And people said he had healing talents. So he was warmly welcomed into these circles. 1905, he was introduced to the royal family and I don't think much happened then until 1908, when he was summoned to the palace of Nicholas and Alexander, the Romanovs, during one of the hemophiliac um, bleeding spells that their young son had. And it said that Rasputin eased the boy's suffering. So it could have been that he actually practiced some sort of hypnosis, which people said he did. He, it could also have been because they said he stopped the doctors from giving the boy aspirin, which is a blood thinner. We'll never know, but it did stop the bleeding and gave the boy hope. So the Tsarina was very impressed. He was quite a charmer by all accounts. He always took care to maintain a very pious demeanor in front of the royal family. But away from the royal family, he had quite the reputation for drinking and bonking his way all over town. So... In fact, there are stories that he preached that physical contact with his own person, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, had a purifying and healing effect. So he had a lot of mistresses, and he attempted to seduce a lot of women, saying that it would heal them if he could enter them. <laughs> and people were disgusted by this, quite rightly, and they told the Tsar about it, and he didn't believe it. He also didn't want to believe it because it was the first time that his wife had some sort of hope for the young son's condition. Um, by about 1911, Rasputin's behavior had become a terrible scandal. Um, Nicholas was told that he had to do something about it. But what happened actually was that the Tsar got rid of the people who complained about Rasputin. Anyway, by about 1915, Rasputin holds a lot of power with the Romanov family. The Tsarina really likes him. But the people supporting 
the Russian Empire. And you know, we're getting into the First World War here. We're getting into Bolsheviks. We're getting into a tremendous, uh, you know, a time of real difficulty here. But the people who were supporting the Romanovs just couldn't handle Rasputin's behavior anymore. And several attempts were made on his life. But uh, none of them were successful until 1916. And there was this chap called, um, I think his name was Yusupov, Felix Yusupov, one of the conservatives there and husband of the Tsar's niece. He got his mates together and they just just before New Year, I think on December 29th, something like that, 1916, they got together and they invited Rasputin to someone's home. And when he was there, they poisoned him with wine and tea cakes and he didn't die. And so they shot him and he collapsed, but he still didn't die. And he was able to apparently run into the courtyard where he was shot again. And by that time, the conspirators had had enough of him. They tied him up and threw him into a hole in the Neva, which was iced over at that time. And finally, he died by drowning. Wow. I mean, wow. That was the end, um, as we know, of Rasputin and also the Romanovs. In my opinion, he was not a holy man. He was a clever charlatan, a fraud with no formal training, skilled in the art of the con. And uh, not the holy roller people think him to be. The more I read about him, the more I sort of meditate on him, the more of a malevolent controller with no morals and no sense of propriety or decency he seems to be. And there you have it, people. He ended up being shot, chased, shot again, bound up, taken down to the icy river and drowned in a hole. I would say... That was not a life well lived. Well, there you are. That was Rasputin 101. And now it's time for a little drinky poo. Oh, lovely. All right, my darlings, what shall we do next? Let's have a look. I think it's time for a little pat of poetry after all that murder. Yes, folks, after a hard day shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home putting my feet up and having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo and writing really bad non-peer-reviewed poetry. Today's ditty is titled, Oh my God, I wish the election were already over. Here we go. The majority are not silent. The media are silent about the majority. It's all smoke and mirrors and illusion of collusion. If the truth cuts the darkness like scissors, after much screaming, we will see an end to this confusion. To choose left or right, such hilarity. To think we are ruled best by polarity. It gives me the creeples to witness the brainwashing of our sovereign people. No matter how loud we shout, it seems many have not yet figured it out. Green, red, or blue, it's always us they screw. Well, that was a cheery little ditty, wasn't it? <laughs> well, we're getting very close to the election. I think we've said all that we can say about the election. 
I don't know that anyone's going to change their mind at this point. The extremes in polarity, the contrast, at this point, I don't think people want to change their minds. They don't even want to know what the truth is. They just want to think that what they think is true. They want some sort of validation for that. Well, don't we all? All right. I think we should move on now. And now it's usually time for Plato Chips, where we quote a philosopher of note. But today, instead of highlighting yet another verbose windbag, we will have the best of the prophetess. Choice words from history's finest soothsayers. And that's not easy to say with a chipped tooth. Today's choice is none other than Mother Shipton. So who was this old gal and why do we care? Mother Shipton was born, we think, Ursula Southall in 1488 during the reign of Henry VII, father of Henry VIII. Although little is known about her or her parents, there's a legend that she was born during a violent thunderstorm in a cave on the banks of the River Nid in Knaresborough in the northern parts of England. Her mother, who we think was called Agatha, was just 15 years old when she gave birth. And um, despite being dragged before the local magistrate and asked to confess, she would not reveal who the father was. I'll say probably because it was the local magistrate. Anyway, with no family or friends, Agatha apparently raised Ursula in the cave on her own for a couple of years before a local abbot took pity on them and a local family took Ursula in. Now, benevolent and compassionate as the church was in those days, they separated mother and child. Agatha was taken to a nunnery in a land far, far away where she died some years later, never having seen her daughter again. But Ursula grew up around Nesborough. Apparently she was a strange child. Apparently she looked a little witchy, or did they just make that up? They say perhaps her nose was too large, her back was bent and her legs were twisted. Hmm, sounds like folklore to me. But either way, she was taunted and teased by local people. And in time, she realized that perhaps she'd be better off on her own. And they say she spent most of her days around the cave where she was born. And there she studied the forest, the flowers, the herbs, and the fairies taught her how to make remedies and potions. And it was from the fairies and the elements and the cosmic intelligence of Mother Gaia that she received her PhD in all things folkloric. We think that at 24 years old, she met a young man and his name was Tobias Ship Shipton. Shipton. And he was a carpenter from the city of York. York is a very pretty little town in the north of England. So they married. Tobias died a few years later, and they did not have children, but Ursula kept his name, Shipton. So now she's Ursula Shipton, and they called her mother later on when she was an old woman. That was typical. Now, we can't be sure how much of this legend is true, but we do know that 500 years ago, there was a woman called Mistress Shipton, and she lived in Nairsborough. And when she spoke, people believed her and thought of her as some sort of a, a prophetess. Uh, she foretold the fates of several rulers um, within her lifetime, and she 
She told us that there were going to be ships made of iron. There was going to be a great fire in London. She said, there's the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And as well as making all her traditional remedies, she had another gift. And this was the gift of predicting the future. Apparently, it started with small premonitions. But the more she practiced, as one does, she became more confident and her powers grew. And eventually, she was known as Nairsborough's prophetess. And she made her living, quite a decent living, apparently, telling the future. And she didn't die until 1561, age 73. That's a good run for that time. Ursula Shipton, 1488 to 1561, better known as Mother Shipton, soothsayer of Britain. Now, here's the thing. No written accounts of her prophecies appeared until 1641. And that was 80 years after her death. And they contained a number of, well, mainly regional predictions. But her legend grew through oral tradition. So the book was written. And I think we can say it was embellished a bit. And since 1641, there had been more than 50 different editions of the books and books about her, not just her, her prophecies. So I'm going to read a little bit of some of her little uh, couplets and quatrains and um, her little, you know, her little prophecies. Did she write them, though? This is the thing. Somebody came out years later and said, well, I might have written it just so I could sell some books. We'll never know. So here's um, a few little prophecies from Mother Shipton or whoever the heck wrote them, still proving uncannily accurate. And now a word in uncouth rhyme of what shall be in future time. Then upside down the world shall be and gold found at the root of a tree. All England's sons that plough the land shall oft be seen with book in hand. The poor shall now great wisdom know Great houses stand in far-flung vale, all covered o'er with snow and hail. A carriage without horse will go. Disaster fill the world with woe. In London, Primrose Hill shall be, in centre hold a bishop's see. Around the world men's thoughts will fly, quick as the twinkling of an eye. And water shall great wonders do, how strange, and yet it shall come true. Through towering hills, proud men shall ride, no horse or ass move by his side. Beneath the water, men shall walk, shall ride, shall sleep, shall even talk. And in the air, men shall be seen in white and black and even green. A great man then shall come and go, for prophecy declares it so. In water, iron then shall float, as easy as a wooden boat. Gold shall be seen in stream and stone, in land that is yet unknown. And England shall admit a Jew. You think this strange, but it is true. The Jew that once was held in scorn shall of a Christian then be born. A house of glass shall come to pass in England, but alas, alas, a war will follow with the work where dwells the pagan and the Turk. 
These states will lock in fiercest strife and seek to take each other's life. When North shall thus divide the South and Eagle build in lion's mouth, then tax and blood and cruel war shall come to every humble door. And one more sweet little snippet that I like. For those in wondrous far off days, the women shall adopt a craze to dress like men and trousers wear and to cut off the locks of their hair. They'll ride astride with brazen brow, as witches do on broomstick now. And roaring monsters with man atop to seem to eat the verdant crop, and men shall fly as birds do now, and give away the horse and plough. So if you um, go to your favorite search engine, um, all of which I think except DuckDuckGo are being sued right now, and put in Mother Shipton, you can download a PDF of all of her prophecies. She did, by the way, I think also predict that the world would end in 1881. And I think in 1881, people didn't sleep very well. Uh, they slept again in 1882. So Mother Shipton, true or woo? Uh, a bit of both, I think. Ursula Shipton did exist. Um, I visited her cave. She wasn't there. Um, but uh, it's an interesting cave where they say that everything um, petrifies, as in molecule by molecule water exchange petrification, not like, uh, I'm frozen in fear, petrification. That's in North Yorkshire in England, near the River Nid, pretty part of the world. How accurately were her prophecies recorded or were they made up? Well, you know what? Someone prophesied and a great deal of them came true. So your guess, my darlings, is as good as mine. Now, I think we have just enough time to do The Wizard's Gizzard, also known as Points to Ponder, a little spiritual ritual that you can make habitual. Today's Wizgiz is called, If I Were to Have My Life Review Right Now, Will I Be Okay or Will I Have a Cow? So for those of you who understand the originating soul and the cosmic process of eternal creation, your life review is something you do when you go to heaven, when you have processed your personality and you are ready to remember all of the different incarnations that you've had, you basically take a look at the movie of your life and see what went right, what went wrong, according to the notes that you made before you incarnated. So the way I look at it is, every so often I say to myself, if I drop dead now, what would I regret not achieving? What would I regret not having said, having done? What hurts my heart? It's a really big ritual, actually, and you don't have to deal with everything all at once. But every so often, perhaps New Year is a good time, Take a look and say to yourself, if I drop dead right now, what would I regret? And there you are. It helps you. It's useful. Well, my darlings, what time is it? We're getting close. I think we're going to start to wrap it up for the day. I'm finishing my drink, which is an extra large one today because I felt like making an extra large one. And when I finish my drink, that usually means the end of the show. So I will say I hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it, because I had a blast. I always do. It is my pleasure to connect with you. 
and hear your tales, your stories, your woes, your cons and your pros, and occasionally the name of your hose. Today's real-life martini isn't a martini, it's a cocktail called a Grave Digger of Deadly Doom, very suitable for Halloween. In my humble opinion, most Halloween cocktails are far too sweet and have far too many ingredients in them, so a good cocktail should be, did I say cocktail? A good, a good cocktail, which is definitely having its effect on me, should be simple and have no more than four ingredients. So here's the gold, uh, the grave digger of deadly doom. It's a long drink. You take a highball glass. In the glass, you put one part bourbon, two parts hard cider. Fill the glass with crushed ice. Top it up with ginger ale or ginger beer. Your preference. There is a difference. And that's it. You drink it. And it's delicious, and it's lovely, and it's refreshing. All my cocktail ingredients are purchased from my excellent local liquor store, Stafford Beverage, in North Wilsonville, Oregon. They have a large inspired selection, old-fashioned courtesy, and really good product knowledge. Now remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top-quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Abadissian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Happy Halloween to you all, and until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.